Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series podcast highlighting how local governments are leading the way toward a more sustainable future. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. I've spent the last 16 years working for and with local governments to help them create resilient, inclusive, thriving communities. I started this podcast series to connect you with the key people on the ground putting sustainability into action in their communities. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to SAS Talk with Kim. I'm really excited today. We have Joyce Coffee with us uh, for our podcast. And Joyce, as many of you know, is the founder and president of Climate Resilience Consulting, working with businesses and governments to create actionable strategies that enhance markets and livelihoods through adaptation to climate change. Joyce, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to be here, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And Joyce, you know, as we've been planning for this call, I've been thinking about, like, I think we first met, I want to say it was in 08, uh, when I was at ICLEI, you were with the city of Chicago, you guys had just finished up your climate action plan, which was just so impressive, uh, and still is a good model to this day, for sure. Uh, You know, now we think about this, like, eight years later, how would you describe the progress that's been made, you know, not only in Chicago, but certainly all around the U.S. on uh, climate change adaptation? Well, yeah, that's a great question, Kim. And it's nice to think back to that moment. I mean, a lot has happened for both of us. We were really both clearly on the vanguard in the quest for increasing urban resilience. And I just want to acknowledge that at that time you were working for ICLEI and you were a leader there that was part of this um, movement that I hadn't really heard much about until they put it on my plate, which had to do with increasing adaptation and decreasing climate risk in cities um, and in in counties. King County was a big part of a report that ICLEI put out that was really foundational from my understanding. So thanks for that. And, you know, it's also kind of amazing that in that time we've had kids and we've evolved into (laughs) our own business owners. So I just want to acknowledge that, you know, a lot can happen for careers in a short amount of time, especially if you stay true to your own vision, um, you know, for where you think you can make the biggest impact on the world. Um, well, thanks, but, Joyce. Yeah, and I'm glad yeah. we've stayed in touch this whole time. I think, you know, it's it's been interesting to see how our, what was really a small group of professionals back in the day, 10 years ago, now has really grown to a, a real large profession mm-hmm. and something that students are even getting to go to school for these days, you know, studying yeah. sustainability and climate science and as an undergrad uh, it's it's amazing to have seen that transition, and I'm so thrilled that I've been able to be a part of it and happy to be able to keep connections like with people like yourself. Yeah, I think at the same time, there's been a really interesting transition globally, and you know that just gets back to your first question, that I'm perceiving that adaptation, whereas it had been something that was really hard for leaders to embrace and talk about because many of them felt as though by doing so they were acknowledging that they had failed on mitigation, it's now okay to speak about adaptation and to understand that we must really work to not only avoid the changes that we can in fact mitigate by decreasing greenhouse gas emissions, but also to manage, prepare for, and uh, be resilient uh, to those risks that we can no longer avoid. So the the biggest change I would just say um, is in the global sphere where, you know, the Paris agreement that was um, 
uh, promulgated in December of last year, 2015, now not only has a mitigation goal, but also has an adaptation goal. It has um, requirements for plans that uh, sovereigns must carry forward and reporting on those plans and reviewing those plans, just like it does for mitigation. So this was a really major turning point for adaptation. And it was also, uh, you know, came um, just days before, really, the World Economic Forum put out their annual economic, I'm sorry, uh, risk perception survey, which, you know, every year at Davos, they uh, unveil a thousand educated elites uh, put their best minds to this survey. And for the first time ever in the 10 years um, that they've been asking questions of these leaders, they have determined that the failure of climate change mitigation and adaptation is the number one risk in terms of impact for corporations. So that is also very interesting because in prior surveys, for instance, adaptation wasn't even mentioned. It would just be climate change risk. Um, And, you know, sometimes things like water would come to the fore, but there wasn't really a theme of climate change adaptation until really this year when it emerged at the top. Um, And of course, then the third thing I would just say um, that may be less germane in the United States, um, although I think many of us wish it were a little bit more powerful here, is the Sustainable Development Goals, which came out um, in November of 2015. And, you know, for the first time, not only do these goals, which replace the Millennial Development Goals, uh, acknowledge climate action, but they actually put climate adaptation um, as the primary action in climate action that uh, anyone who's embracing those sustainable development goals needs to take on. And of course, other elements of the sustainable development goals, like, you know, um, uh, things around education or reduced inequities, um, or improved governance, all of those help with adaptation, as do anything that relates to improved infrastructure, uh, improved water quality and availability, uh, improved access to food, which are other elements of those 17 SDGs. So there's clearly been a shift towards embracing adaptation as a part of our um, resoundingly improved future. Yeah, and that's great. I hadn't heard about that uh, risk perception survey that you mentioned where climate uh, is number one risk. And I think it's really important to see these national, multinational, global organizations really making that emphasis around the importance of thinking about climate change, both adaptation and mitigation as part of that future. Uh, You know, I think obviously folks like you and I know this, we get this. Um, And certainly with Paris, the Paris Accord, such a big deal. Uh, now it's in effect, um, really something exciting. Are you seeing from your work that at the local government level that folks are paying attention to this? I mean, you know, probably the New York cities and in those big ones, but are you seeing more broadly folks really understanding what these goals that are being established, these targets that are being set, how that could affect them and or how they could play a role in supporting them? You know, in the U.S., I would say that um, most cities, when I might mention to them, uh, you know, there's been this great Paris Agreement that now includes adaptation, they're like, well, that's nice. Finally, people are hearing what we've been saying all along, which is that we are the front line of these risks, and we need every level of government to embrace uh, actions that inc- improve our resilience. And that really gets to also cities um, demanding that the federal government um, help in terms of finance, 
and an appropriate regulatory and policy frame that allows for the local governments to continue their work and resilience. And I use that word continue really um, in a very specific way. I think any of us who have worked for or with cities closely acknowledge that city government is resilient. They are always dealing with the uncertainty of a changed future. Um, be that a different electorate, demographic change, economic changes, uh, certainly a significant deterioration in infrastructure um, as funds for modernization um, have not been forthcoming. And so, you know, that question about, well, are cities, you know, caring about these global um, or anyway, internationally promulgated actions um, around climate adaptation, I think the answer is, not really. What they really care about is that they have the money and the time and the authority to take on improving lives and saving livelihoods in a climate change future um, with additional resources. I think that's really the bottom line for most cities in the U.S. You know, and that's a great point. Um, I work really closely uh, with the American Public Works Association, and I'm the chair for the Center for Sustainability for APWA, and that's one of the points that that I've noted quite a bit and um, you know you mentioned how it's we are resilient at the local level we, we're getting this stuff and, and they're doing and with all of the ongoing natural disasters extreme events that are happening you know I think it's constantly keeping folks this concept front and center that this is a changing time you know what we've looked at historically isn't necessarily what is going to keep us safe moving forward and so understanding all that you know what we always hear and have always heard from local governments around trying to do anything is always how do you pay for it this is essential it's safety you know it's livelihood but how do we pay for it and you know you've had such an interesting career and most recently here you're becoming you know the guru here on climate adaptation financing so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about you know, what, what this looks like on the local government level, these financing options, how do you pay for these kinds of strategies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's just an excellent question. I think um, first it might be worth pointing out one of the biggest problems or two of the biggest problems around paying for resilience and adaptation, climate adaptation specifically. Um, the first is that there's really a, um, a reluctance on the part of cities to take on more debt Um, because if they do so, that has a negative implication on their fiduciary obligations um, that are reviewed in their credit ratings. And on the other hand, in order for them to be more resilient, debt is very likely, you know, more geo-bonding authority or special districts that have their different bond for climate um, or even green bonds, catastrophe bonds. All of these mechanisms um, are certainly at the forefront of one's mind when we ask the question, how should cities pay for resilience? But on the other hand, cities, if if their bond rating drops, it makes it much more expensive for them to borrow. So there's a really strange perversity in the system right now because a credit rater, of course, is essentially asking the question, is this... Uh, sovereign, city sovereign, able to pay back this debt. And if it looks as though they are, then they get the A's in their ratings. And an extreme event and even stresses, not just shocks, but even stresses that are caused by climate change could in fact impair that city's ability 
to take on to, to pay back uh, their their debt. And so the key is that we need to somehow unhinge um, the credit raters' lack of embrace of resilience and both put in the risk as well as the work that the city is doing to mitigate that risk in the credit raters review. I think that would go a long way to increasing cities' ability to embrace debt, more debt to pay for modernizing infrastructure. And I'm gonna say that that to me is the number one resilience improvement that most cities should make is modernizing infrastructure and ensuring that any new or um, uh, you know, improved existing infrastructure always asks the climate questions. You know, how will more extreme heat, how will more extreme floods, how will um, more extreme wind impact this project? Um, so that's number one, I think, in terms of challenge, that there's really this dissonance between a lack of a desire to borrow more on behalf of cities and um, the credit ratings and the need to, you know, to, to take on more debt. The second thing I think is even more complicated, um, but is something that we all need to get our arms wrapped around. And that is that cities right now uh, need money for long-term investments. But who are the long-term investments on investors on Wall Street? Who looks beyond their quarterly report? Really, who looks beyond three months in Wall mm -hmm. Street? Well, what... What in, what in cities do we pay for for three months? Not on the infrastructure front, nothing except for salaries. So there, there really is a huge time gap between how Wall Street works, which is a quarterly reporting cycle, and how infrastructure needs to work, which is investment for the 50-year horizon. And the reason why that matters, I mean, that's always been the case, right? But the reason why that matters more than ever in this climate change world is that we need investors who are looking to a different future than the past. And generally, Wall Street doesn't do that because they're only looking at the quarter and you don't see climate change in quarters, not yet anyway. And so that time change, um, time difference, timeline difference, I think is one that will be changed when, for instance, Companies like BlackRock, which is already actually doing some, I think, really earth-shattering things in their letters to shareholders saying, hey, you may not believe in climate change, but it's happening in that it's impacting your portfolios and you need to look at risk across all of your holdings from the perspective of how change climate will impact that risk. That is the beginning of inviting shareholders to ask more than just the quarterly questions. And, and actually, BlackRock also says that. They've said, you know, we've never been a fan of the quarterly reporting. We've got to move away from, you know, that to thinking more longer term. Um, I think there are two types of longer term investors or patient investors out there that are, you know, really worth according. And this is where I'll end this particular answer. The first is the bond holders, as I've said before. And um, muni bond holders are very likely the first entree, I would think, into Wall Street to get uh, cities more money for resilience. They will get the point that cities are on the front line of these risks, that you can't flee these cities, they are here for the long term, and that bonds need to be a huge part of increasing their ability to have robust um, city infrastructure. The other group, I would say, is the pension funds because they have a fiduciary obligation to their retirees to be looking out 10, 20, 30, 50 years. 
And so I think they are, just as they have been in the mitigation arena, mitigating greenhouse gas emission arena, they are a very likely long-term patient uh, investor that um, needs to be addressed by the climate resilience community. Even though they're like turning a barge to change, once you get them moving in the direction towards resilience, I think they will be a very important contributor to financing resilience in cities. That is really interesting. You know, there's so much to that response that, you know, I think it it gives folks a lot to think about and it'd be great to start seeing those shifts. I guess one of the follow-ups I have to that is, you know, if, if I am, let's say, in a local government that's more advanced, gets this, I'm willing to to work with my uh, bonds agencies and pension funds folks and all that, you know, is there something as an individual community that I can do? Am I better off working through, um, you know, the ICMA or one of our professional organizations? Or are there other groups that are trying to engage these different agencies so that they're understanding that they need to make some change? Like, what is that role that an individual community could take here to, to move, help move the needle a bit? Yeah, well, I do think that ICMA um, and also groups like the new, um, newly named, uh, used to be the Global Compact, but it's a group of cities that C40 and Mayor Bloomberg is heading up now. Um, and I'm sorry that I don't recall the name exactly. Um, they are excellent advocates for bringing, for instance, the pension funds to an increased awareness about the need to invest in, aware- in, in adaptation. So yes, yes, using professional associations is a way to go. But I think also on an individual basis, cities have an obligation to do a better job of really looking at cost avoidance, because that's a major quantitative tool that investors use. And it's hard. It's very hard to do an economic cost avoidance calculation, you know, modeling these risks through your balance sheet, um, because there aren't a lot of great examples. I, I would say that Chicago has a very good corporate risk assessment um, that uh, was completed for us by Oliver Wyman on a pro bono basis, you know, back in the day, as you mentioned earlier in the, in the session, Kim. Um, but the, the key here is that we need to figure out how to interpret the climate models so that we can actually look at how much money cities will be saving in the future if they put adaptation in place today. And of course, there are thumbnails that a dollar invested today saves $5 in a climate change future. Some are even as bold as to say a dollar invested today in water infrastructure saves $10 uh, in the future. I think by 2050, um, you know, that $10 savings would be accrued. And the, the um, city of Chicago numbers were that we would save um, I think you know over uh, 3.2 billion dollars by 2050 if we put in place climate adaptation actions around heat and flooding um, today. So that economic cost avoidance is really important, and it needs to include what the city's understanding is of climate impacts. But there's another key, and that is that I think we need to learn some lessons from the insurance industry um, around how to model these risks. And this is something that a rich city could try and a poorer city might look at and then learn from a richer city's um, experience. So there, there are three firms, um, Air Worldwide, RMS, and CoreLogic, 
who really emerged out of the, um, after Hurricane Andrew in 1992, so way back, when the insurance industry had 10 or 11 huge bankruptcies because there were just too many policyholders with too, holding too much risk, um, and it tanked these firms. And so the insurance industry began a 10-year quest to essentially put in place a 1 in 100 um, risk analysis. So every single policy that insurance companies hold now has to go through a one in 100 year stress test asking what is the impact on this policy of a one in 100 year event happening, uh, you know, a 1% chance event happening. That stress test is a huge, um, and, and they use, by the way, these models from RMS, Air Worldwide, CoreLogic, although some of these big firms now have their own models. But those stress tests, really help to determine where the priority funding should be for a city. So let's say you have a really leading um, metropolitan area, like Milwaukee, the metropolitan um, Milwaukee sewage district is just, has, they've done some phenomenal things around green infrastructure. They've come into complete compliance with a consent decree. I mean, they're just almost at, I think, 97% of um, stormwater capture in their, in their watersheds. Um, they could have in the past, um, you know, if these fiscal models been available, used them to really determine where the biggest bang for their buck was for any one of these great infrastructure projects. And they could have gone to their funders to say, you want to fund this project because here's the amount of costs avoided by putting it in place. And of course, they did have their own cost of avoidance models. But I think that's a really crucial next step for many cities is looking at these um, these risk models and stress testing their product projects so that they can go to city council and say, these millions of dollars are going to save you and your constituents many millions more in the future. And this project is going to be more impactful than that one in this climate change scenario. It's interesting um, that you mentioned uh, Milwaukee and their kind of water utility. I'm, you know, listening to everything that you're saying here. It it does seem to me, and I, I'm curious to get your thoughts. If if those local governments that run utilities are maybe in a better position to really start thinking about climate adaptation, um, those longer term risks, taking those necessary actions. Is that is that maybe what you're seeing, or am I missing something? Well, I would, ha- I would say that I'm not actually expert enough to answer your question um, smartly, except to say this, that first, electric utilities um, have been, they've been talking about resilience forever. And in fact, you may have had this experience. I- I've had it several times in the last couple of months where I'll be talking to someone who generally deals with electricity. Maybe they're at a green bank. And so they've done a lot with um, you know, various loans to utilities to increase renewables or whatever. And I keep using the word resilience. And it dawned on me about you know, 20 minutes into our conversation, they think I'm talking about electric utility resilience, which is a very specific thing. We're talking about whether or not the grid is resilient to various impacts. And of mm-hmm. course, it is part of climate adaptation, but I mean something bigger. Um, I mean, you know, we're talking about utilities and how they will, in fact, be able to withstand the Hurricane Sandy so that water can continue to be pumped and hospitals can continue to operate and, you know, people can continue to work because it's all, I mean, water and electricity, those are our two foundational needs in any city. Um, And water, by and large, relies on electricity, um, except in some uh, places that don't require those, you know, pumps to be electrified. So... 
I would say that in some ways we have a lot of lessons to learn from the electric utilities who have been looking at resilience for a long time, number one. Number two, the reason I hesitated to respond with a resounding yes to your question is that it's, it's a relief to cities not to be responsible for everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for instance, in the city of Chicago's case, um, Commonwealth Edison, um, back in 1995, uh, really failed the city during a heat wave when we lost more than 700 souls um, to heat-related causes. And generally, in the end, a lot of those losses were attributed to the fact that ComEd failed to provide electricity. So people could not stay cool or they couldn't even learn news about what was going on. Um, and in the end, the city got a huge settlement with ComEd that funded our climate plan. So it's, you know, and it funded a lot of other things. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not suggesting that we ever want those sorts of tragedies to right. result in that sort of future. But what a relief that the city, with everything else they have going on, isn't responsible primarily, except for as an adjudicator, for delivering electricity to people's homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I, I, you know, I have a little bit of a, um, a double-edged sort of answer there. <laughs> no, but that's a good one. And I didn't realize that that's where the funding had come from initially for that Chicago's climate action plan. That's interesting. So, you know, I think I have one last question for you and you've answered a lot of the questions I had here. You know, I think this, there's a, this is a whole landscape of, of opportunities um, I personally don't feel that I'm particularly finance savvy. Um, but you know what I'm thinking about from our listeners perspective, bringing it, it back down to them. I mean, are there, are there any examples out there? Are there, um, of, you know, a, a great climate adaptation project that's really leveraged innovative financing or funding mm-hmm. strategies that, that you can think of that might, kind of ground this in reality for for our listeners? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I'm going to share with you the story of an innovative financing tool that is being considered for adaptation um, by cities that have major infrastructure um, at risk due to sea level rise. Um, It's called a resilience bond, and Refocus, which is a, non, is a consulting firm based in California, is promulgating um, the process. And generally how it works is if you imagine a seawall that needs to be elevated in order to accommodate the king tides, storm surges, and extreme um, hurricane-related floods that result from um, a climate change future. So imagine all the assets that are behind that flood wall, that seawall. You know, there's the Hyatt um, with its giant hotel. There are, uh, maybe there's a water utility. Um, There are certainly multifamily housing units, and there's a commercial district. Every one of those entities has insurance. So who benefits in the end from a seawall that prevents all that flooding? Well, clearly, anybody who's living or working there is better off when they're not flooded and there's a monetary benefit to that. But the the major beneficiary is the insurance company. The insurance company who doesn't have to pay out claims, but generally could probably keep their rates the same, even though the the flood wall has been raised. And so the idea of a resilience bond is that prior to even establishing the um, elevation of the seawall project, you enter into a contract with the insurance companies for every one of those entities. 
even the privately insured water utility, for instance, could be part of this deal. And you would have to work closely with a bank um, to pool that money and allow that money, therefore, to fund the first, second, and third phases of this seawall project. So it's more complex than that, but that's how I understand it. And Swiss Re and um, I think Goldman Sachs have been working with Refocus um, to conceive of this kind of project in several East Coast cities. So I think it's a really wonderful reminder that um, two things. One, that the, there's always innovation happening in cities, and we have to laud them for looking for the next break that they're going to be able to turn into an opportunity. Uh, and two, Wall Street is often eager for new risk and new mechanisms to to essentially grow rich off of that risk. So there are ways to look for that Wall Street, Street itch and scratch it with these new tools. Um, you know, we know, for instance, from the catastrophe bond model, um, catastrophe bonds entered the marketplace, I don't know, maybe seven years ago, I may be wrong about the date, um, with this, the Mexico City. And no one was really sure whether they were going to be a big deal, and they are a big deal. You know, catastrophe bonds have increased exponentially. Um, and the reason why is that Wall Street wants a new way, you know, outside of the normal bond to figure out how they can, you know, diversify their funding. Um, so resilience bonds could be a part of that new era of financing um, on the equity side, uh, resilience investments for cities. That's very interesting. You know, I, I do love the whole idea of thinking about just the whole the whole communication around climate change, right? Like, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it was, you know, oh, we couldn't even talk about adaptation because that meant we, we gave up on mitigation. And, and now we know, of course, we have to look at both of them together. Um, but just that whole communication that we used to have early on that felt more about doom and gloom and really mm -hmm. thinking about, hey, you know what, we – this is happening, how can we use our innovation and our drive? You know, that's, I feel like that's the, that's the American way, right? We're, we're innovative, we adjust, we adapt, um, and really applying that kind of energy and enthusiasm to, to fix this and, and make sure we do have resilient communities uh, and keeping mm -hmm. our, our population safe. So I love that, that concept, and I thank you for introducing it to us. Um, I know we're basically at the end of time here, and, and so much of this, I think, is a pretty new area for a lot of folks, um, so I really appreciate what you've shared here. I know that you have a fantastic website with great blogs. I know I refer to it quite a bit, so I would encourage folks to check out climateresilienceconsulting.com. Um, Joyce, I really loved your blog post uh, back in September finding cash in the couch cushions for climate adaptation just some great ideas there and just again getting folks just to think outside the box some of the stuff is stuff they already know they just haven't thought to apply it in this way um so i think that that was very beneficial particularly you know tools like green bonds and of course pace property assessed clean energy programs are growing and growing across the country we are seeing more and more pace being used for um, resilience strategies in, in our buildings. Um, but I really, uh, is there anything else I should have asked you that our, our audience would need to know about this topic? 
You know, um, Kim, first of all, it's been such an incredible pleasure to have this chance to chat with you. I'm a huge fan of your work, and I love that we're, uh, you know, again, colliding in this important (laughs) space of resilience. I would just say there's one thing that you just mentioned that reminds me that green banks, which not all states um, have promulgated, but they are, I believe, um, the next frontier of vetting finance for uh, resilience. And it, it comes to mind when you mentioned PACE and CPACE, because a lot of the tools that green banks have used to really increase uh, funding for mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions are likely also applicable in the resilience sphere. But because green banks have um, authority only through their state legislature, they actually need to have their authorities' language changed in most cases to allow for financing uh, resilience infrastructure. So, you know, I know, for instance, that the Connecticut Green Bank uh, is, is embracing that and looking to make that change um, and encourage the, the legislature to make that change in the coming years. And I think that's a really important area for cities to stay tuned to and maybe even to raise their voices um, when, they, when they go to, uh, to their capitals to uh, make the legislatures aware of the risks that they're facing and the opportunities that those risks present. Because your point that, you know, we, are, we, are, we have an opportunity here to help modernize infrastructure in cities, to help save lives, to improve livelihoods, to make more equitable places. That is what resilience is. And if climate change allows for cities to focus more deeply on that, then we will be better off in our future uh, by having leaders who embrace these changes and allow for them to be a part of a really robust um, plan and and action around um, climate change. Well, I could not have said it better myself, Joyce. I think that's a fantastic way to end this uh, podcast. I thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insight and expertise with our audience. And we'll look forward to having you back on with some more great examples as we keep moving down the, the path of a more resilient future. That sounds lovely. Thanks again, Kim. Have a lovely afternoon. Take you care. Too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining this episode of SAS Talk with Kim. You can listen to other podcasts in our sustainability action series at sastalkwithkim.com. Remember that action is the key to your community's sustainable future. What will you act on today?